He wanted to go travel. He wanted to do all these things. He wanted to build skyscrapers. He wanted to do all of these things, but, but he couldn't. He, he wasn't able to do that. He was stuck in this little town, if you will, and couldn't do all the things that he wanted to do. So what did he do? He said, I, I'm just going to live my life, and I'm going to do the best that I can. I'm going to work at the building alone, this place that I don't really want to work at. And he has a, a wife named Mary, and they have these kids. And so he ekes out an existence there for 10, 15 or so years, if you will. And then a crisis hits. The building alone, Uncle Billy, absent-minded Uncle Billy, Somehow Mrs. Place is $8,000. They can't find They look all over the city. They didn't know that Potter had the money. But they, they can't find this money. And, and George, after looking and, and trying to find this, he just comes to the realization, my life is an absolute failure. From the beginning to end, it's just been an absolute failure. So he goes to the, to the end of town, and there's this bridge there, and he's there, and he's contemplating throwing himself off of the bridge. Just ending it all. My life's just a giant failure. I don't know what my life has been around. And while he's there, people are praying, and, and God intervenes by the, the guy on the screen there. That's George and his family. It's Clarence, the, the second-class angel. And what God does is God uses Clarence, the second-class angel, to bail, to help him. And what's interesting in the movie is this, that, that God does save George, but, but not by providing $8,000, and not by bailing out of the circumstance, and not by doing all of these things that you would think that would happen. The reason and, and the way that, that God saves George is by giving him a picture, giving him a snapshot of his life and how his life affected other people, despite the fact that he did all of these things and didn't really know what he was doing and what was going on. In the simple ways that he simply served other people in the town of Bedford Falls. What I want to do is this. I want to show you a clip. It kind of summarizes George and, and Clarence's life. It's kind of the end of the movie, and it's a reflection on the nature of the relationship between George and uh, the Clarence the Angel. So here's a brief clip. Christmas present from a very dear friend of mine. Look, Daddy, teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. That's right. That's right. Had a boy, Clarence. At the beginning of the movie, when they first had this interaction between George and Clarence, uh, George doesn't want anything to have, have anything to do with him. He just thinks this is odd it's weird he's having some kind of vision he has no idea what's going on but over the course of the movie they develop this friendship and what the book that um george is holding right there is actually the book that clarence had in the movie uh, it's the adventures of tom sawyer and he writes it at these words you saw it dear george remember no man is a failure who has friends thanks for the wings love clarence and george described his relationship with clarence as a very good friend and over the course of the movie, they develop this relationship, they develop this friendship. And what I want to do this morning is this one of the, the major themes, if you will, one of the major themes of this movie, and why people like this movie so much, is this idea of relationships. 
about building into the lives of other people, even when you don't know exactly what's going on, even though you don't know maybe the things that you're doing, but building into the lives of other people, being kind, being generous, speaking words, giving small little things, living your life in such a way can have an incredibly powerful impact on the lives of others. And that's one of the major themes of this movie. It's why it's such a beloved movie, especially at Christmas time. So what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to invite you to turn your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. We're looking at this movie. We're looking at the theme, It's a Wonderful Life. Listen, George came to the understanding, to the conclusion that he did have a wonderful life. I think as we look to the principles from this movie, and we look to Scripture, and most importantly, as we look to the life of Jesus and how he demonstrated these things, we too can have a wonderful life. And that's what I'm going to look at this morning. Philippians chapter 2, two verses, two simple verses. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. Let me read the Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. Notice what Paul writes to the people of Philippi. He says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Now, what a great theme at Christmas time. Verse 4, Each of you, individually, personally, each of you, should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Again, what a wonderful, beautiful theme of the life of Jesus demonstrated through Paul's writing to the people of Philippi. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for the life of Jesus who came to this earth and offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins so that ultimately we might have a new way of living, that we may have a new way of looking at life, that we may have a new way of looking at ourselves and looking at others, Lord, that you have come to transform our hearts and our minds into the wonder and the beauty and the character of Jesus. So, Father, I pray that you would simply open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things from your word. And it's in the name of Jesus, I pray, and all God's people said, amen. Let me ask us something. What happens when a Christian is wonderfully encouraged from being united in their faith with Jesus Christ? What occurs when a person is comforted by the presence of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us and that, that, that idea of God's love being a part of our lives? What happens when a believer understands that there's this wonderful fellowship of the Spirit? What happens to a community of faith, to people like you and I, when we come together and when we have this understanding that we are to be like-minded, we are to have the same love and being one in spirit and purpose? What happens when that type of spirit hits a people and a community? Well, what they begin to do is they begin to look outside of themselves to other people's circumstances and ways that they can help and serve and pour into others. And I think that's what Paul is doing right here. Is Paul is just saying, listen, there's a couple of things that you need to eliminate in your life. But there's also some things that I want you to cultivate. And there's also some things that I want you to do. And that's kind of what I want to do this morning. I just want to take apart this, these two verses, if you will. And there's something we need to eliminate. There's something we need to cultivate. And then we need to participate. So that's where we, we're going to go this morning. What do we need to eliminate? There's something that we need to eliminate. Notice what he writes in verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. So, so how do we eliminate this idea of self-centeredness? How do we eliminate this idea that, of, of personal goals? Let me ask it. Is, is it wrong for us to have personal goals? Well, of course not. If you go back and look at the book of Proverbs, over and over we're told to plan to prepare, over and over we're told to do all of these things, to plan out your life, to pursue certain things. 
So, so having personal goals and personal ambitions, it's not wrong. But with the idea of selfish ambition here, it's one word and it has the idea of this. It, it means to uh, have this idea that you're working for the wage. It, it's an interesting concept. Selfish ambition means working for the wage. In the context of a business, in the context of a job, we all work for a wage, right? Nobody works for free. But what it has is this. It means this idea of I'm, I'm working only for myself. I don't care about the people. I don't care about the, the context. I don't care about the business. I, I don't even care about necessarily what I'm doing, whether it's morally right, whether it's aligned with God's word. Or not. All I care about is myself and how it's going to benefit me. Selfish ambition is so about the goals and the personal plans of one person. It means this, that I want it my way. Life has to be my way. Life has to be uh, such a, a way that it's prominent about me. It's all about me. And, and it's about making other people yield to my wills and to my wishes. And what Paul is saying, listen, you need to eliminate the personal goals that factor out all the other people. Don't be working in such a way that you are the absolute center at the expense of people, at the expense of God's word, at the expense of what God might have for us. And he also goes on to say this, eliminate this idea of self-centered, this impersonal glory. I would believe that many times personal ambition leads to what? Personal glory, right? Why do we want the job? Why do we want to do this? Why do we? Because maybe we want the personal glory that comes with position and power and prestige. You get the bigger house, you get the bigger job, you get your name here. You get all of these things, and so all of a sudden this idea of personal ambition works out where I'm working for my own personal value, my own personal glory, if you will. The idea here is this, it's, it's vain glory or, or vain conceit. It has the idea of pride without the proper basis. Pride without the proper basis. Now imagine me boasting pridefully, gloriously, if you will, that I can sing better than other people. Now, what would bear that out? What would bear that out is just to simply hear me sing, and you would know that there's no way that you can sing better than anyone else in this room. And that's what pride does. Pride says, it, it doesn't take the, the idea of who I am, what I'm doing. It just says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pursue it. I, I'm going to walk after this. I'm better than everyone else. I can do this better than anyone else. We become more important than other people. We think that we are more important than other people. I'm more deserving than other people. I'm going to live my life in such a way that I'm going to personally pursue these goals, but it also means that I'm going to reap the benefits of the glory of whatever that might come. And the Bible simply says that we are to do what? We are to live for the glory and the honor of God, not ourselves. I can do personal goals. I can... Seek after these things, but not at the expense of my faith, not at the expense of all these other things going on in my life. By the way, look at the life of George. Look at the life of Henry Potter. Henry Potter was a man who had it all, right? He had power. He had possessions. He had all of these things. But there's no way the people of Bedford Falls accepted him, embraced him, and thought him to be a person of integrity. Why? Because he was all about one thing, himself, his money, and his glory. That's all that he cared about in his life. He's described at the very beginning of the movie as this, being the meanest, the richest yet meanest man in town. Why was he the richest man in town? Because he was the meanest man in town. And all of the decisions and everything he did centered around what was best for him, what was best for uh, his cause in life. That's the way he looked at it. 
What I want to do is this. I want to show you another clip about how uh, George is, is uh, his father has died. And he's not sure exactly what he's going to do. He wants to go and he wants to go to uh, college and do all these things. And so they have to do this transfer of the business, if you will, uh, from Peter Bailey, George's father, to someone else. But notice how George describes his father. And you probably get a good idea of how George came to be who he is. Watch this clip and notice how George reflects upon his father. In that case, I'll ask the two executive officers to withdraw. But before you go, I'm sure the whole board wishes to express its deep sorrow at the passing of Peter Bailey. Thank you. It was his faith and devotion that are responsible for this organization. I'll go further than that. I'll say that to the public, Peter Bailey was the building in law. Oh, that's fine, Potter, coming from you, considering that you probably drove him to his grave. Peter Bailey was not a businessman. That's what killed him. Oh, I don't mean any disrespect to him, God rest his soul. He was a man of high ideals, so-called. But ideals without common sense can ruin this town. <laughs> now, you take this loan here, the Ernie Bishop. You know, that fellow that sits around all day on his brains in his taxi, you know. I happen to know the bank turned down this loan. But he comes here... And we're building him a house worth $5,000. Why? Well, I handled that, Mr. Potter. You have all the papers there, his salary, insurance. I can personally vouch for his character. Friend of yours? Yes, sir. Uh, you see, if you shoot pool with some employee here, you can come and borrow money. <laughs> what does that get us? A discontented, lazy rabble instead of a thrifty working class. And all because a few starry-eyed dreamers like Peter Bailey stir them up and fill their head with a lot of impossible ideas. Now, I say... Just a minute, just, just a minute. Now, hold on, Mr. Now, you're right when you say my father was no businessman. I know that. Why he ever started this cheap penny ante building alone, I'll never know. But neither you nor anybody else can say anything against his character because his whole life was... Why, in the 25 years since he and Uncle Billy started this thing, he never once thought of himself. Isn't that right, Uncle Billy? He didn't save enough money to send Harry to school, let alone me. But he did help a few people get out of your slums, Mr. Potter. And what's wrong with that? Probably... Here, you're all businessmen here. Don't it make them better citizens? Doesn't it make them better customers? You, you said that they, what'd you say just a minute ago? They, they had to wait and save their money before they even thought of a decent home? Wait, wait for what? Until their children grow up and leave them? Until they're so old and broken down that they, do you know how long it takes a working man to save $5,000? Just remember this, Mr. Potter, that this rabble you're talking about, they do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Anyway, my father didn't think so. People were human beings to him, but to you, a warped, frustrated old man, they're cattle. Well, in my book, he died a much richer man than you'll ever be. I'm not interested in your book. I'm talking about the building and loan. I know very well what you're talking about. You're talking about something you can't get your fingers on, and it's galling you. That's what you're talking about, I know. Well, I, I, I've said too much. I... You're the, you're the board here. You do what you want with this thing. There's just one thing more, though. This town needs this measly one-horse institution, if only to have some place where people can come without crawling to Potter. Come on. You know, I, I, I like that. 
because it shows a contrast between George, Peter Bailey, his father, and Potter. And you, if you're familiar with the, the movie, you know that all throughout the movie there's this battle between Peter Bailey and George Bailey and Henry Potter. And you see the character of Potter right there. He doesn't care one, one part about the city. He doesn't care about people. He basically dislikes the very people that he serves. And yet you have this wonderful picture of a guy by the name of Peter Bailey. It says his faith and devotion are what carried him in. Not just in his personal life, but his faith and devotion. What It carried into his business life. So in his business life, what did he do? He served other people. He saw himself as a conduit for blessing other people. And, and the very thing that Potter confronts him on, he says, these kinds of people fill their heads with what? What Peter Bailey and what George Bailey did was filled the heads and the hearts of people of a better way to live and a more productive way to live amongst the community. And that's doing what? Serving other people. That's what he says. He, he says he never once thought of himself in his personal life and his business life. And by the way, if you know anything about the movie, what did George do? George did the same thing. Over and over in the movie, George simply gives away, whether it be his money or gives away his life or he gives away all of these things so that he can serve the better good of other people. And that is a biblical principle that we're looking at here, that we have the incredible privilege, no matter what context we live in, maybe I'm a family, the business that I'm a part of, my neighborhood, that I can look after the interests of other people. So what we need to do is eliminate the selfishness that so captures our hearts, if you will. So what do we do? We need to cultivate the right things. Look at verse 3 again. What do we need to cultivate? We need to cultivate the right things. Verse 3 says this, But in humility consider others better than yourself. Hmm, humility. That word is an interesting word. It means low. It has to do with your thinking, humble thinking, to think modestly, having a low estimate of your own importance, having a low estimate of your own significance. The reason I say that it's an interesting word is because basically in Greco-Roman thought that they had no word for, for humility. They didn't really have a word for it. They understood about pride. They understood the, the ramifications of what it meant to be pride, the destructive nature of being proud, of being arrogant, of being self-serving. They had uh, an understanding of what it meant to be proud, but they didn't have a word for this idea of humility. And the reason I think it is is because it has the idea of, of lowliness, of, of, of meekness, and a lot of servants were looked at as being lowly and meek. So what they didn't want to do is they didn't want to, to see that, oh, being lowly or meek or, or having this idea of humility was, was something that was bad, was something that was detrimental, it was something that was anti-Roman or anti-Greek, if you will. It was a, a virtue that they didn't celebrate because it was looked on as being servitude and terrible, something they didn't want to emulate. But I also think there's another reason why it's an interesting word. It's because of this. The city of Philippi, to whom Paul was writing to, they were a proud city. They were a leading city. They were a mini Rome, if you will. They modeled themselves after the mother country of Rome. So all of their language and their culture and their influence and their Egyptian temples reflected the very influence of Rome. They were a mini Rome. They wanted to be like Rome. They eschewed the values of Rome. 
So when Paul comes to the city of Philippi, in Acts chapter 16, what does he do? He and Paul, uh, Paul and Silas come into the city, and, and there's no synagogue. So what do they do? They go outside of the city. They find this gal named Lydia, and they begin to teach her about Jesus. And, and God opens her heart, and she responds to the message. And all of a sudden, what's happening in the town is this. The people's lives are being transformed. People's lives are being changed. And the people in Philippi don't like it. Acts chapter 16, let me read what's happening in Philippi. And notice what the people are being confronted with. Acts chapter 16, verse 20 says this. They, the, 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 the leading authorities, they brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. They're bringing some kind of teaching. They're bringing this religious teaching. They're bringing these thoughts about humility. They're bringing these things that are contrary to what it means for us to be Rome, what it means for us to be a proud, dominant people, if you will. And it upset not only the people, but it upset the entire city. Lydia comes to Christ. The servant girl comes to Christ. A business is destroyed. A jailer comes to Christ. And all of a sudden, the people in Philippi are confronted with the reality of Jesus' teaching by Paul and Silas. That teaching that Paul brought, that teaching of Jesus, is revolutionary in how it changes things. That idea of humility was brought to the forefront by the person of Jesus himself. Look at verse 8. It says this, speaking of Jesus, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You and I, in the context of Philippians chapter 2, are invited to emulate the life of Jesus by becoming humble and looking to who he is and what he's done for us. Jesus becomes the model, if you will, of what it means to live not self-centered, and not seeking after our own glory. There's a man by the name of Peter who had to learn this lesson of humility. Almost all of you are familiar with the story. Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, and he says, you're all going to fall away. And what does Peter say? No, I'm not going to do it. Everyone else is going to fall away, but accept me. We all know the story. He crushed. He cracked. He crumbled. And many years later, in 1 Peter chapter 3, you'd write these words about humility. He says this, Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic with one another. Love us, brothers. Be compassionate and be humble. You and I are called to emulate, demonstrate this virtue of humility. With our family members, with our friends, with our co-workers, and our goals and ambitions as we submit ourselves to the Lord, as we submit ourselves to who he is and what he would have for us, we live our lives not in arrogance and boastful, seeking our own glory, but what we live is a life that's humble. There's a guy by the name of John Stott. He's a wonderful pastor. Uh, many of you have heard of him, probably read some of his works. He said this, and I think it's significant for us and how it might affect us today, whether you agree with it or not, but listen to what he says. At every stage of our Christian development, and every sphere of our Christian discipleship. Pride is the greatest enemy, and humility is our greatest friend. Is that true of you? 
Do we look at life? Do we look at ourselves with this idea, I need to submit myself under the authority, the power of God, and I need to be humble and submit my lives to other people and serve them, whether it be serving my wife, serving my children, serving other people. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 60, the last chapter in the book of Isaiah, God is reminding the people that I'm the creator of heaven and earth. I created, I spoke these things into existence. In Isaiah chapter 66, he says these words, Has not my hand made all of these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. God invites you and I to be humble and contrite and to tremble at his word. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, God is opposed to the proud, but what? He gives grace to the humble. So in the context of our relationship, in the context and the wonderful values that we have, you and I are to live a life of humility. A a couple of years ago, there was a song on the radio, and it really struck me because of the words, and it was a a song that Tim McGraw sang. It's a country song, and the name of the song is is called Humble and Kind. And he didn't write the song. It was actually written by a woman by the name of Lori McKenna. And the context in which she wrote this song is really interesting. And I want to tell you why she wrote it. This is what she said. That song is a selfish little poem, lullaby, that a mother of five wrote for her kids one day. At that point, my oldest is 25 and my youngest is 10. When I wrote it about five or six years ago, I dropped off the kids at school and I sat down on my dining room table with my coffee and I started thinking about all the things that Jean and I wanted to make sure we told our kids. This is what she wanted to do. This is an anthem of what she wanted her kids to emulate and live out in life. And here are some of the words. You know there's a light that glows by the front door. Don't forget the keys are under the mat. Childhood stars shine. Always be humble and kind. Go to church because your mama says to. Visit grandpa every chance that you can. It won't be a waste of time. Always be humble and kind. Hold the door, say please and thank you. Don't steal, don't cheat, don't lie. I know you got mountains to climb, but always stay humble and kind. At the core of what she and her husband, Jean, wanted to demonstrate to their children was the idea of no matter where you would find yourself in life, there's nothing wrong with being humble and kind. And that's simply what the Bible says in humility, live your life in such a way that you look away from yourselves, you look to the lives of other people, and that you do the best that you can to invest in them. How do we live that life of humility? Look at verse 3. Consider others better than yourself. Consider, think. That's what the word means, reason. Consider others, others. That's the word for the one another's of the Bible. The love one another, bear one another burdens, care for one another, admonish one another, encourage one another, build up one another. Consider, think of all of the one another's of the Bible, and it says better than yourselves. The idea of better means this. Better has the idea of value. Do I look to other people and do I give them value? 
rather than putting myself at the center of my life and the center of all of them? Do, do I look and am I trying to do the absolute best that I can to build up and help other people become all that they can be? That was the message from Peter Bailey to his son. I, I want to fill these people, I want to fill their minds and their hearts with a vision of themselves that they can live better and they can be better people. They don't have to live in the slums of Potter. But they can have an idea that they can be better in themselves and better people in community and better ways to serve other people. Because what we have the opportunity and the privilege of doing is building into the lives of other people and to giving them value. It doesn't mean I, I, I devalue myself. I, I don't think what Paul is saying, now what I want you to do, Clint, is I want you to go through and I want you to make a list of all the ways that all the other people in the church are better than you. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, don't think about yourself. Think about the context of other people and how wonderful your life is and how your life is a blessing and how you can then be a blessing to other people by giving them value in life, by building them up in life, and by helping them to live your life, their lives in such a way. I mean, think about it. What if you are better in singing than another person? What if you are a better manager? What if you are a better teacher? What if you are a better preacher? There may be some objective facts about your life that are absolutely true. What are you supposed to do? The text says to give value to other people, to esteem them, to build them up, and to help them, and not think in the context of your own life and how better you are or could be better. This is about skill. This isn't about anything like that. This is about the way that we value and look and perceive the other pe person who's been created in the very image of God. And that God can use them in a mighty, powerful way, even when we can't think of it. How do we do this? We don't become so concerned about ourselves. I don't look in the context of my selfish ambition and my vainglory. I look in the context of other people and say, how can I value that person? How can I help them? How can I build that person up? How can I be a part of their life? Listen, that's the story. That's one of the stories, one of the main themes. Of it's a wonderful life. Is that George simply poured his life into other people and he didn't even recognize it. It just became second nature to him because of what he was doing in life. You and I have the great privilege of eliminating the bad, cultivating the good, humility. And then the last thing is this, that we need to participate. We need to be proactive. And I think what we have in, in verse 4 is we have the, the application here. Let me just walk through the application. Look at verse 4. Each of you should look. Look, not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's, it's personal. It's, it's each one of us. He's speaking to each one of us. What, what, am I, what am I perceiving in life? What am I perceiving not by looking at myself, but what am I perceiving in life? By, by looking around to the other people that God has brought in the context of my life. Do you realize in the Bible, there's a wonderful theme? Let me just give you a couple verses. Galatians 2, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. Uh, you don't have to carry that burden today. And, and you don't have to carry that burden today. We have the privilege of, of coming alongside and saying, I, I want to carry that burden with you today. Romans chapter 12 says this, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. What a great 
what a great privilege, what a great opportunity to honor someone better than ourselves. Over and over in the Bible, we have this great privilege to be countercultural and in humility see other people as better than ourselves and to pour our lives into them, if you will. So what I wanted to do is in, in this movie, I'm, I'm, I watched this movie, I don't even know how many times. I, I mean, I, I know the, the verbiage of it. I wanted to find one scene, one scene that seems to summarize George's life and the way that he lived. And, and I think I found it. And it's a real brief scene. It's the last scene I want to show you. But, but watch this scene because I think what it does, it captures well the way that George lived his life. George, can I see you for a second? Well, of course you can. Go on, officer. Uncle Billy, talk to Harry. He's on the telephone. Hurry up, Uncle Billy. It's Harry, long distance, Washington. Hey, here's Harry on the phone. You know, your nephew, remember Harry? Here he is. Hurry up. Hello, hello. Yes, Harry. Yes, everything's fine. Well, my head is $70,000. It's got to be somewhere. Character. If I had any character, well, it I'd... takes a lot of character to leave your hometown and start all over again. Oh, no, George. Here. Don't. No, here. Now, you're broke, aren't you? I know, but... What do you, what do you want to do? Hawk your furs and not a hat? You want to walk to New York? You know, they charge for meals and rent up there just the same as doing Bedford Falls. Yeah, sure. No, no, it's a loan. No, that's my business, building and loan. Besides, you'll get a job. Good luck to you. I'm glad I know you, George Bailey. Say hello, New York, Fanny. Yeah. The gal, Violet, has been a part of the movie, and she's had this dream to, to do a bunch of different things, and now she's getting ready to leave and go to New York and live out her dream. She has no money, very little to her life, and in and, and, and a beautiful picture, George just gives her, gives her some money so she can get established up there. Can you hear the words she said? I'm glad that I know you. In other words, it wasn't just about that one act. It was about the fact that she knew who he was and she knew what he had done, not only for her, but for the people of the town. Your life made a difference in my life by the very, very simple things that he did by serving other people. He made a practice of his life to serve other people. And that is a beautiful picture of our faith. It's a beautiful picture of what it means for you and I to, in humility, see other people as better than ourselves and the opportunities that we have to build into the very lives of other people. There's a picture, um, as, as I watched this movie for the, uh, a, a lot of time, that there was a picture. And I think this picture captures well the essence of the movie. And here it is. You might not be able to see it, but George is looking at the wall, and there's a picture of his father, and there's a picture of a little writing underneath it. And notice what the writing says. It says this, all you can take with you is that which you give away. All that you can take with you is that which you can give away. Isn't that, isn't that biblical? Isn't that seeking first the kingdom of God, and God will add all these things to your life? Isn't that sound theology, that the way that we have the opportunity to build in the very lives of others will build them up? Notice the verse that's underneath there. A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself 
be refreshed. Wow. At the end of the movie, how is George refreshed? How is he saved unbeknownst to him? All of the townspeople gather and they all come to give back to him all the things that he has poured back into their life. They come with money. They come with treasures because he simply poured himself into their lives throughout his life. And and that verse is so correct. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. So what I want to do is I want to end this way. When you look at the book of Philippians, there's a lot of values about relationships and friendships in this. It's not just a bunch of teaching, but, but it frames our faith, if you will, in the context of relationships, in the context of friendships. And what I want to do is I just want to give you close, but, but how this, this idea of relationship and friendship fits under the broader picture, if you will, of the book of Philippians. Friendship in Greco-Roman culture was important. They wrote about it. The philosophers talked about it. They debated it. So what Paul is doing when he frames this letter, he's writing with a context of friendship and relationship. So let me just rip through this real quickly. What does that look like? Relationships, friendship, and the context of the book of Philippians. Number one is care. They cared for each other. Verse one or verse eight of chapter one says this, I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Chapter four, verse one, my brothers, I, I long for you. There's this idea where they where genuinely cared for each other. There was a partnership. There was a partnership. There was koinonia. There was fellowship in the gospel message. There was fellowship in the grace message. There's fellowship in the union with Christ. There's this fellowship in suffering. There's this koinonia, there's a partnership. We're, we're all in this together and we need each other. There's this idea of, of unity, that we're pursuing something bigger and broader than ourselves, not our own ambitions and goals, but we're seeking unity in the fellowship and the bond of peace. We're seeking something beyond ourselves through the Spirit of God. There's this idea of, of like-mindedness. We have like-mindedness based upon the nature and the character and the person of Jesus and who he is and what he would have for our lives in love and spiritual obedience, if you will. The idea of companionship. What's interesting, in chapter 4, verse 3, he used this idea of a yoke fellow. How are we tied together? By a yoke. We're bonded together by a yoke in the family of faith. And we have the great privilege of being able to help and serve each other. We have this partnership, this koinonia in the giving of receiving. Chapter 4, Paul says, listen, I went out from here and I went and traveled and no one gave except you. You continue to give and you continue to give. And that's what fellowship and that's what partnership and that's what friendship does is it gives. And the last thing that we see demonstrated in this book is they share life together. The highs, the lows, the difficulties, the challenges of life. We give ourselves to each other in such a way that we share the common goals in life. We eliminate the bad. We cultivate the good. And we practice what it means to live and to follow Jesus. I I believe that uh, George in this movie was able to have a wonderful life because he seemed to be doing a lot of the things that we find demonstrated in scripture, demonstrated in the life and the person of Jesus.
by serving other people. We too can reflect on who Jesus is, what he's done, and live and serve other people, especially at Christmas time. Now, maybe God's going to bring someone in your, in your path this week, maybe a total stranger. Maybe God's going to bring a situation, something to you this week where you have the opportunity to demonstrate value to another person. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his humility. We thank you for his obedience. We thank you that he came to this earth to live and to show us the proper way of, of living. And Father, it, it's a way that doesn't look inward, but it looks outward. Not only to others, but ultimately it looks to Jesus and who he is and what he would have for our lives, Lord. Father, I pray that you would help me, help us to fix our minds and our hearts on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, that we would not set our minds and our hearts on earthly things, but we would set our minds and hearts on who you are and what you've done for us. Father, thank you for Jesus. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Mm -hmm.